You are listening to the light of today with the powerful, life-changing Word of Christ that heals, delivers, transforms, and fills you with the Holy Spirit. Let God's truth burst forth into your heart. Stay tuned to the light of today with Chris Palmer. Me and I like to raise up thinkers, and so I, the Lord, put on my heart to have a how to study the Bible class because we did a Bible study. Um, a couple in the fall and how to study the Bible was everyone's favorite so I said why not just do a whole eight weeks on how to study the Bible and um, so I think we'll do that uh, the last next couple weeks and I'm praying about doing a Bible study on Tuesdays even though Tuesdays got a light crowd I'm thinking about doing one on the kingdom after this and I think it'll be helpful but um, are you ready to study the Bible tonight ready to get in okay if you have your Bible go with me to Luke 16 16 I promise there'll always be something new are you ready to learn something brand new tonight Luke 16, 16. And for the people that have been here before, have you guys learned anything? Have you applied anything yet to this? You've applied a couple things? Okay. It says in Luke 16, 16, Until John the Baptist, the law of Moses, and the message of the prophets were your guides. So he's mentioning the prophetic books that we're going to be talking about. This is Jesus talking. He says, The law of Moses and the message of the prophets were your guides. But now the good news of the kingdom is preached and everyone is eager to get in. And we'll talk about the kingdom next week. But what I want you to see right here is that he mentions the prophets. We talked about what that would mean. And he's referring to 16 books of the Bible that we're going to look at tonight. Um, four of which are major prophets. Twelve of which are minor prophets. And uh, uh, this is more of an educational class. So... Uh, and it says here in Acts 13, 15, you don't have to turn there, but I'll, for sake of time, we'll be plenty in the Bible, so we're just going to run through some of these. After the user reading from the books of Moses and the prophets, those in charge of the service sent this message. Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, come and give it. So right away he says, after the readings from the books of Moses and the prophets. So who are these prophets that he's talking about? What, I mean, obviously, it's something that the, uh, the Jews in Israel were going into the temple and they were hearing about these prophets on a regular basis. And so uh, tonight we're going to look at the prophetic books. Now, the prophetic books are divided into two categories. Number one, you have the major prophets. Some say major prophets. And then you have the minor prophets. Some say minor prophets. Uh, the major prophets are Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel. And then you have the minor prophets, which are the final 12 books of the Old Testament. Um, these books actually take up as much space as the whole New Testament. People don't realize this are these books that you never turn to. When was the last time you did a study in Habakkuk? When was the last time you actually said, you know what, today I'm going to wake up and, and you know what, where were you reading today? I was in Nahum, I was in Haggai, I was in Hosea, I was in Amos. And you know what we like to do as New Testament believers? We like to say, you know what, I'm a New Covenant Christian, Jesus has died on the cross, I got the Holy Spirit in my life, I'm going to park somewhere in Acts. I like you know, Revelation, I like John, Jesus is my man. And then every now and then you get venturesome, you say, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to go over there into Genesis. And if you really want to live life on the edge, you actually might go into First and Second Chronicles. But don't ever think about going into Nahum. No, no, no. Actually, maybe Jonah. You like know about the fish, right? You know about the big fish. You like that. That's your minor prophet for the year. But the other books are difficult. But when you do that, you are foregoing a section that is the size of the whole New Testament. And so I think it's important that we find out just a little bit about these books so we can get in and learn how to apply it to our life. 
There are two things I want you to write down if you're taking notes tonight. Two important dates I want you to remember. These are extremely important for understanding uh, what's going on in these books. And they are, if you're taking notes, 722 BC. And five, I don't know, depending on what historian you ask, 587, 586 BC. This is important. These dates you have got to know. You have to know these dates. You gotta know what happened on these dates in order to find out what is going on. Now, if you decide to read Genesis to Nehemiah, that's your Bible study, you have actually read through the whole entire history of the Old Testament. So if you said, I went Genesis and Nehemiah, you've read the whole New Testament. Everything that is going to happen, that can happen, has happened. And these 16 books occur somewhere between Genesis and Nehemiah. That's the end right here. Genesis and Nehemiah. So you have this. So everything happens between Genesis and Nehemiah. Do you know what that means? You have 16 books of the Bible going on in this time somewhere. You guys got that? So what happened in 722 B.C.? What happened here? What is the big event? Now you guys do know that this is a later date and this is an earlier date, right? Okay, because when you go B.C., everything is 587 years before Jesus. This is 722 years before Jesus. We would think sometimes it's an earlier date, later date. 722 B.C., you know Israel. This is Israel, if you will, basic shape. What happened to Israel? It was divided into two kingdoms, right? You have the northern kingdom, and you have the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom was known as Israel, and the southern kingdom, can anybody tell me what it was called? Judah, right? Come on in, the water is nice and fine. It was Judah, right? Jerusalem is located in Judea. Now, did you know, that is a fun fact, you can fit the country of Israel in Lake Michigan three times. Israel is only 240 miles top to bottom, and at its largest point is 70 miles. Um, you can fit Israel in Michigan seven over seven times, actually. Just over seven to 7.3 times, actually. It is a very small place. And when you think about it, you have this massive, this really tiny country that's always being surrounded by these massive, giant world empires, and somehow... They always seem to do fine. Right? I mean, here you have Israel, right here. And who do you have over here? You got the Egyptians. Who do you have over here? You have the Babylonians. And who do you have over here? You have the Assyrians. And who do you have kind of over here? You have the Grecians. All these world empires. And here's little old Israel, the size of Lake Michigan, divided into three. So there's a lot that's going to happen now. And we know the history of Israel. It's called Canaan land. The Canaanites were in Israel, right? And God promised this land would be with Moses, to Moses and said, Moses, I'm going to give you this land. You're going to be blessed. You're going to live in this land. But what did he do? We talked about this when we talked about the law. He told Moses he's going to cut a covenant with him. And that was the covenant at Sinai. You guys remember this? And he said in Deuteronomy that if you would keep these words of the law that all these blessings should overtake you. But if you don't keep these words of the law, then what did he say would happen to Israel? These curses would overtake you. That's Deuteronomy 28. We're not going to go there because we have so much to get through. Then God said this specifically to Israel, that 
I will be your God and you will be my people and your enemies will be my enemies. You guys remember that. Okay, so the question becomes, what happens if Israel becomes disobedient? And we're going to see that Israel, after, actually before the reign of King Josiah, and after the reign of King Josiah, in the 8th century BC, became extremely rebellious, extremely disobedient, and God decides that he has to raise up a prophet. Okay? So, let me just say this real quick. Before we even look at these books, why are these so difficult to understand? Why is it that we don't study these? Number one, as I'm just explaining right now, is that we don't understand history. That's the first reason. We don't really know what's going on in Israel, and we don't really know what's going on in Judea at the time. We don't have this idea of what's happening in Israel. The second reason is that sometimes we look at prophets as people that simply just foretell the future. So if you say Hosea is a prophet, you think that Hosea is speaking that something's going to happen, you know, and it hasn't even happened yet. I, uh, Hag- Haggai prom- prophesied something, and we think it's yet to happen. Most of um, Old Testament prophecy, prophecy, 92% of it actually, 92% of Old Testament prophecy has already uh, come to pass. Two prophets, 2% of prophecy in the Old Testament talks about the Messiah, who is Jesus. And 5%, less than 5%, talks about things that have yet to see the fulfillment. Do you know what this means? That 92% of Old Testament prophecy is, to us, history. So do you see why we can't understand the prophecy? Because we don't understand history. Does that make sense to you? I'm trying to make this interesting because this is educational and <laughs> it can get boring I think, if you're not interested in it. Okay, so we sometimes look at prophets uh, as predictor of future events. Um, and we'll also notice that prophets, um, we have 16 we're talking about now. How We can think of Elisha. We can think of Elijah. Uh, on Friday night, I'm going to be talking about King Josiah. Come, it's going to be powerful. I'm going to talk about a female prophet named Hulda. We can name a few others. Samuel. But did you know Israel had hundreds of prophets walking around at that time? Hundreds that we don't know really anything about historically. And before the prophets, you would see what prophets did. Very few you could actually say something that Elijah said, but you can tell that what Elijah did. He was taken up in a chariot, right? Elijah banged the, uh, uh, hit the water and the axe head came up. You know what the prophets did. But we don't know what the prophets said. So when we get to the prophetic books, God says, you know what? I'm going to tell you what the prophet's message was, and you're not going to know much about their lives. And that's why it becomes difficult, because we're not reading something about them biographically. We're just now looking at something, what they had to say, and it becomes uh, more vague to us. Um, And here's probably the real reason, this is going to get you off the hook right now, is that these books were never meant to be uh, read in one sitting. The next thing is that there's historical distance between them, which means that uh, if we don't understand history, like I said before, it's going it's to be difficult. So, what was the role of a prophet in Old Testament history? Number one, if you're taking notes, God would find prophets, and he would say, you know what, I'm not just going to make you these spooky people that come along and scare people and prophesy gloom and doom, and you're not going to be just psychics where, you know, you try and tell future events and raise lots of money. You know what God says? I'm going to raise people up to be my prosecuting attorneys. This means that 
what they would do is, like I said before, God gave all of Israel in Canaan land a covenant with them. And he says, you're going to either have to keep this covenant or you're not going to keep this covenant. And if you don't keep this covenant, there's going to be curses. And so the covenant, the keeping of the covenant was known as what? The law. And so when they didn't keep the law, God was concerned out of his heart because these were his people. And God says, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to put my word upon certain people. Um, and they became covenant enforcers. Now, you know there's certain verses that... Uh, let's go with me to Jeremiah chapter 33, verse 19. They were the Lord's prosecuting attorneys, but they were also God's direct representatives. So these are very important people. But you're going to see in just a minute, they weren't treated very importantly. They're actually treated like the scum of the earth. You know... Um, it's very interesting sometimes, and I was thinking about this today when I was in prayer, that many times God's people, as you'll see in the book of Hebrews chapter 11 and Hebrews chapter 12, God's people who he puts his spirit upon deserve the greatest honor. Billy Graham said one time, if God has called you to be a preacher, don't take a demotion and become the president. Because he's called, he's put his word in your mouth. But did you know that's, that you'll find out, especially in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, it's said of men of God that they were treated as, and Paul quotes, the scum of the earth. Many times God gives us assignments as his people and tells us to do certain things, and we're disrespected and we're shamed. And we have to understand that eternity still exists and that our reward is still on the other side of eternity. And a lot of these prophets, you'll discover, were treated absolutely terrible. They were hated and despised, as we're going to see in just a moment. It's going to get good as we see. But nonetheless, they were despised, they were hated, they were rejected of men, they were rejected by their own nation, but yet they were God's representatives. And it says in Jeremiah thirty-three nineteen, this tells us exactly why they're so important. It says, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. Very simple statement, but in the Hebrew here, the more accurate rendering of this is the word of the Lord was entrusted to Jeremiah. These were when a king entrusted his word to somebody they became ambassadors from the heavenly courts who relayed the divine sovereign's will to the people and so the prophet's job was to faithfully convey God's message of national punishment and blessing wherever they went because a prophet had the word of God in his mouth Are you guys okay with the heat in here? Is it okay? Because a prophet had God's word in his mouth, he was able to set up kings, he was able to declare war, and he was able to speak against war. He was pretty much the government. But the people had to accept the prophet. Okay, you guys starting to see now where we're going with this? Because we're going to talk, I'm telling you now, who we're about to find out, why God had prophets. The next thing is the prophet's message was never original. We think that the prophets were sitting in some type of cave, like the cave of a doom, saying, you know what, I'm going to come up with a message. I'm going to come up with a message of doom and gloom. And God was giving them all this new stuff. But what you'll discover is that the prophets never were saying anything new. If you take apart what they were saying, all they were doing was simply reinforcing what Moses told God's people on Sinai. And the only difference is that the prophets were inspired by the Holy Spirit to say it in a new way. Go with me in Hosea 4 too. Let me show you. Hosea was a prophet, as we'll see in just a minute, that was risen by God. 
to preach against Israel's unfaithfulness to him before they were destroyed by the Assyrians that were coming out of the north. And by the way, we'll see in a second that Assyria was probably out of Greece and out of Babylon and out of Persia and out of Egypt and even out of Rome. They'll tell you, history will say that the Assyrian Empire was by far the most cruel. And so Hosea gets risen up by God and he goes and tells God's people in Hosea chapter 4 verse 2. Actually, i got to get there. You know, i got this nifty computer. I just use this all the time. Hosea 4.2. It says, There is swearing, lying, murder, stealing, and committing adultery. They break all bonds, and bloodshed follows bloodshed. Now, notice what we see here. We see five things that they did. Swearing, lying, murder, stealing, and committing adultery. And you know the Ten Commandments. That's five out of ten. Why didn't he say all ten? Why did he only say five? Because God inspired uh, Hosea to only say five. This was a poetic way, a way of saying you've broke all ten of them. Because, you know, if, uh, let's say, a father tells his son, this is what I want you to do, son. Now, I'm leaving. I'm leaving. And I'm going to be back in two hours. But what I want, I'm going to be back at the end of the day. But what I want you to do is I want you to, to rake the leaves. And I want you to mow the lawn. I want you to clean the bathrooms. And I want you to uh, sweep the garage. And all of a sudden, father comes home and he sees his son on his Xbox playing video games. Nothing's been done. He comes in and says, what have you been doing all day? You haven't even picked up the rake. Well, he didn't say you didn't pick up the rake. He didn't do, all he said was you didn't pick up the rake, which is going to make his son realize, I didn't just pick, not pick up the rake. I didn't do anything. That's symbolic for you didn't do nothing. You sat around on your hands all day. That's another way of saying it. And so it's nothing new. It's just reiterating what uh, Hosea, uh, what God had told Moses. So someone say, it's not original. original. Alright. And uh, each prophet's message uh, came uniquely. So you'll find out that every prophet had their own style. Every prophet uh, had their own unique vocabulary, idioms, if you really got into it. Now, um, I took some time and I felt that it was important if we're going to understand these books. Um, my I was talking on the phone to my dad last night, and uh, we were talking about the book of Isaiah, and he quoted me something there and asked me, you know, what is it, where is this from? And we started talking about the book of Isaiah, and he told me, wow, I'd really be interested to find out about what happened in Isaiah's time, and, uh, because Isaiah is probably the largest of all, all of the books. So let me go um, through this real quick and kind of go through 16 of the books real quick. I mean, we're just going to speed through it because I want to do activity with you so we can... You know, like I call it, juicing the scripture. You know, when you juice something, you take an apple, put it in there. You didn't think there's any juice in it. Trust me, if it's an apple, it's got juice in it, right? You wouldn't think that carrot's got juice in it, right? It's dry as a bone, but trust me, when you put it in a juicer, there's some juice going to come out of that carrot. You don't think that a, uh, you know, you wouldn't be surprised how much juice is in an orange. You know, man, there's, there's a lot of juice in everything. I bet if you put anything that has water in it, juice is going to come out. Um, and uh, these scriptures have a lot of juice inside of them. But let's look at the historical context, because I said that um, in order for you to understand these books, you have got to understand just a little bit of the history. Now, I understand that we're going to go through 16 books. It's going to be very difficult. 
for you to retain any of this. If anything from that comes with this, it may inspire you that if you do have some time on top of your job, if you do have some time on, on top of all your 80 hours a week of, of working and, and taking care of the house, and you know, I know I'm a minister and I have more time for this, but if you do find any time, you can know what to do, okay? <laughs> I realize that a lot of people just don't have it on a to-do list uh, sweep and uh, go to work for 40 hours and to clean the laundry and go to my kids basketball game and study the minor prophets that's somewhere at the bottom right but if that is there somewhere <laughs> you know what to do okay okay isaiah was written remember we talked about these dates right 722 587 um sure can you get me a, a cloth if you don't mind so i can erase yeah. okay 740 to 687 bc 740 to 687 Yes, please. 746, just to keep up, 722 and 587. Thank you. So 740 to 687 B.C. This means that Isaiah was during the time that Assyria was on the international scene. So what's going on in Isaiah, let me read this to you, is that during the time the Assyrian Empire had declined and there was peace between Judah and Israel. By the time, okay, so do you remember the king Uzziah, right? Uzziah was a king, and it was during Uzziah's time that there was peace. And you'll discover that uh, what's going on is Assyria had reasserted its power over the Near East. And so when you see Isaiah, Isaiah is broken up into three different sections. And so in the first section, you'll see what's going on in Assyria. In the, sex, in the second section you're going to discover that Isaiah is dealing prophetically of the future and he's no longer talking about the Assyrian captivity that's about to happen. He's going to be talking about the Babylonian captivity. And then when you get to the last part, uh, which is the 56th chapter through the 66th chapter, you're going to see that Isaiah is talking about the return of the Lord. So you have it. Isaiah is broken up into three sections. You'll see Isaiah, the first section, the second section, and the third section. The first section has to do with the Assyrians. The second section has to do with the Babylonians. The third section has to do with the coming of Christ. Okay? But the important thing I want you to get is to know that Isaiah was, remember, before this date. Before the Assyrians, okay? Then you'll find out that there is this guy that comes on the scene, and his name is Jeremiah. How many know Jeremiah? Okay, Jeremiah is another one of the major prophets, and uh, when Jeremiah comes on the scene, he is going to prophesy during a time of struggle. In 598, this is just before 587, Israel has been taken captive. So you have Israel, let's draw it, it's kind of like this. You have the northern kingdom, and you have the southern kingdom. Here's Jerusalem right here. This is Judah, and here we have Israel. Okay, Israel at this time had been taken captive. They had fallen. And now you have this other section of the country, Judah, and everything's good in Judah. But Judah is becoming highly disobedient. And so God says, I need to raise up a prophet and warn them to stop what they're doing because there is another nation that's gaining power, and it's the Babylonians. And so most of Jeremiah's prophecies are warning Judah and saying, hey, listen, 
Do you remember what happened to Israel? Well, guess what? It's going to happen to us. And not only is it going to happen to us, uh, uh, Jeremiah is saying, it's going to happen to us. Now think about this, if you will, for a second. Prophets are supposed to give hope, right? I mean, how many of you have ever heard a gloom and doom preacher just come along and just tell you everyone's going to hell and uh, every day is not a Friday. Every day is a Monday, right? We don't like those preachers today. We live it under a different dispensation. But there were preachers that God had risen up and Jeremiah was called the weeping prophet because Jeremiah loved his country so much. And his message was, listen, the Babylonians are not coming for us. The Babylonians are going to overtake us. There's no chance. You are going to die. This is going to happen. You are going to be destroyed. Don't fight the Babylonians. God has already ordained for them to take you over and they're going to carry you into exile. Because, like I said, in 722, the Assyrians took over Israel and moved all the people into exile. And then in Babylon, in 587, the same thing happened. The Babylonians came in, overtook Jerusalem, destroyed Solomon's temple, destroyed the whole entire place, and took them exile as well. And Jeremiah comes along and says, this is going to happen. Okay? Then you have Ezekiel. And Ezekiel was an Israelite priest taken captive to Babylon. Babylon had two sieges now. Now we're talking about the Babylon. Are you guys following me? Is this, is this okay with you guys? Okay. The Babylonians which were over here, this whole area. Now, if you can picture Israel, this is Iraq and Iran is where the Babylonian Empire is. That really was where modern-day Baghdad's at. That's Babylon. That's where the seat of their power was. And the Babylonians says, we're going to come in and we're going to take Judah captive, but we're going to do two sieges on it. The first siege in 598, they hadn't hit the whole country yet. They wanted to take captive the elites. So they went in and they took captive priests, the kings, all the people that were of importance, and it just so happened that Ezekiel was amongst these people. So what happens? Ezekiel's taken into Babylonian captivity, and while he's in Babylon, you'll notice, this is where he's prophesying from, he starts telling the rest of Israel, guess what's happening? Captivity is coming for you as well. Are you following me? Okay? So are you starting to see now that these prophecies are written during these dates? Right? Okay, now if you've read Ezra and you've read Nehemiah, what was happening in Ezra and Nehemiah? The rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem. Israel, Jerusalem had been destroyed. This is post-exilic. I feel like I'm losing you guys. Are you guys here with me? Are we okay? Are you tell me the truth, right? Okay. The exiles, when I say exilic, I mean Israel's taken captive into Assyria, and this is going into Babylon. So when you read Ezra and Nehemiah, this is when they return to rebuild the walls. And that's why when you look, when you look in Jesus' day, you'll see that you have all this had happened. You see the temple of Solomon. Jesus was in Solomon's porch. He did a lot of his miracles. Well, that's in Jerusalem. He only had been in Jerusalem twice, but he was there nonetheless. Now, that's when the temple had been rebuilt. But it, that was in Ezra and Nehemiah's day. But before that, you're going to see that you have all this going on. Okay, then you have Daniel. Daniel was written in 520. Daniel was actually one of the earliest exiles to Babylon. I mean, we know a little bit about Daniel's day, right? And I'm just giving you a brief rundown. I mean, we could take literally one of these books and go through them the whole... I mean, we could spend six weeks in just one of these books. Um, 
But Daniel's very interesting because when you study him, I mean, we all like going to Daniel. We see Daniel in the lion's den. Something very interesting uh, about the book of Daniel that a lot of people don't know. Can I let you in on a secret? When you study uh, it, it in the ancient text, Daniel chapter 1 and Daniel chapter 8 through 12, which are very important chapters of it, were actually written in Hebrew, which, which is what most of the, which was the whole Old Testament written. But chapters 2 through 7 are actually written in the original text in Aramaic. And this is the only place in the whole entire Old Testament that you see there's a division in languages in the original writings. So why would God have Daniel write part of it in Hebrew and part of it in Aramaic? And what scholars believe is that Daniel's writing that were in Aramaic were open for everybody to know. This is Daniel's oracles. Everybody could know what he was talking about. But the portions that were written in Hebrew were only for the knowledge of God's people. So it makes you wonder what was going on in the book of Daniel that was so important. Well, you'll find out that Daniel had some major prophecies in chapters 8 through 12. At the time, there was a Babylonian captivity. that We were back here in Babylon, 520. They had been in Babylon for over 60 years. And the Spirit of God comes upon Daniel in Daniel chapter 7, and he starts giving him these visions. Now, we don't have time to go through all of Daniel's visions, but in these chapters, you're going to see that Daniel prophesies that there is going to come another king that upsets the Persians, or excuse me, the, the, uh, the Babylonians. And you know when that happened, you see a Persian king that comes in. You know what I'm talking about? You have the Babylonian king, he's having fun that night, and everybody's drinking, and everyone's having a good time, and all of a sudden a handwriting comes upon the wall, and you find out it's many, many tekel, and then nobody can interpret, and Daniel says, your, your kingdom's going to get overthrown, and that very night, his kingdom gets sacked by the Persians. And then he starts prophesying that there's going to be another kingdom that comes along, a he-goat, and this was the Grecians. And Daniel prophesied exactly what was going to happen and prophesied exactly that Alexander the Great was going to be risen up and he was going to be a mighty conqueror, going to conquer and this and that. And he prophesied everything that Alexander the Great did. And he did it. His, he came, Daniel even said it was going to be swift, that he was going to take over quick. And did you know that by the time Alexander the Great was my age, he had conquered the whole known world? And this is God doing this through him. So... You know, we make a big deal sometimes, we, we, uh, whatever your political persuasion is, the Republicans might say, oh, God's never going to do nothing because Obama's in office and the Democrats get another Bush. Oh, I hope Jeb Bush doesn't come in office because God's never going to get nothing done with Jeb Bush. You know, God can do whatever he wants to do through anyone that sometimes God will use unrighteous people to carry out his will. And God says, I'm going to raise up this ungodly, this, this evil king that's going to come who was probably the greatest person in the history of the world outside of Jesus. And uh, God uses him. And then you know what he says? Uh, you'll see that uh, in Daniel, Daniel prophesies that when Alexander the Great died, his kingdom was divided into four different territories amongst his four different generals. And Daniel prophesied that there was going to be this happen, and it happened. And then he prophesied that the Ptolemies and the Seleucids were going to end up fighting each other and, uh, over the area near Egypt. And that happened as well. But you know what the most important part of the book of Daniel was? 
is that in the end, we see something that's yet to be fulfilled. And he talks about one like the Son of Man who is going to come. And he talks about a rock that was hewn out. And he sees this statue with all these world kingdoms. And he sees this rock comes and it strikes the statues and everything crumbles. And he was talking about an unshakable kingdom that was yet to come. And what Daniel is doing in this literature is he is setting up the advent of Jesus Christ to come. So now what you're seeing in the book of Daniel is this whole picture of another kingdom. And Daniel was very much popular amongst the Jews. And so when, now this is really interesting. Let me share this with you. Go with me to Daniel chapter 7. I want to show this quickly to you. Can I share with you something? Are you guys here tonight? Is this okay for you guys? This was the one Bible study I was concerned about because I um, felt that it was going to get, it's kind of in depth. Okay, Daniel chapter 7 and verse number, um, let's see here, 13. Daniel's having a vision. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there come one like a son of man. You can underline that if if you like to take notes in your Bible, because this is a very important sentence. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples and nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. You got that? Okay. Get this in real quick. If you have your Bible... Go with me. Hold on, give me one second. What I want you to see here is let me get this real quick. One second. I lost my place. How many of you remember that Jesus calls himself the Son of Man? Right? Let me ask you this quick question. What do you think would be more of a statement of divinity? You know, there's a, a, a specific... Uh, go with me to Mark 10.45. There is a specific um, movement out there, and they put literature um, on your doorstep. They're known as the Jehovah's Witnesses, right? And they believe, they're modern Arianists, they believe that Jesus was created. The last two Saturdays I've come home and I've seen this literature sitting on my, on my door. Uh, but they believe that Jesus was created, that he's not God. And one of the arguments you're going to get in with a Jehovah's Witness is they'll tell you nowhere did Jesus say that he was God and, or the Son of God. Even though Mark says the Son of God in Mark chapter 1, verse 1, they'll say Jesus never said it. And Pilate says, are you the Son of God? And Jesus says, I am. And from this point forward, you're going to see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven. So, but they'll say, but he didn't say it. They want Jesus to say it. And they're going to get you on that technicality. But here's the question. The presupposition to that is this. If Jesus said he was the Son of God, would that at his time have been any significance to it? And the answer is no. Because if Jesus said he, if Jesus pro- proclaimed, I'm the Son of God, first of all, he was talking to Jewish people. And that would have been understood in his time of saying, I'm the son of, who was the one parading as God during Jesus' time? Judea was a province of Rome. 
And the person that was publicly known in that time as God was the Caesar. So if Jesus would have said, I'm the Son of God, it would have been a very sloppy, messy, misunderstood term in the ears of those that were listening to him. And they would have thought, oh, he's saying he's the Son of Caesar. So Jesus says, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to proclaim myself the Son of, uh, Son of God by using a term that the Jews will understand. And in Mark 10.45 is one example. He says, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. This is a very significant statement in light of what happened in Daniel. Now go back to Daniel chapter 7 real quick. And let's see what Jesus is doing. Daniel 7. Let's pretend that we're a Jew here. Okay, and we're going into the temple and we're going to read this scroll. It says, And as I looked, thrones were placed and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow. Okay, this is the introduction of God the Father. And then he talks about when he comes, the Ancient of Days. And it says, With the clouds of heaven there came one like the Son of Man. 7, 13 through 14 is a statement that talks about him coming in all his glory and all the nations, all the languages serving him. So if you understood this passage as a Jew, you would think that when Jesus was coming, he was going to come with pomp and circumstance. So your expectation of a Messiah would be somebody that comes to rule and reign, and you might think of him as a political leader who's going to come and overthrow Caesar and set up his kingdom, and it'd be an earthly kingdom. But Jesus says, the Son of Man, referring to himself, didn't come to be served, but to serve and give himself a ransom for many. So you have this idea of a Messiah. Can I go on? Are you guys, you guys kind of getting this tonight? He changed the whole scope of Messiah. The Jews were expecting this king. And Jesus says, no, 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 I'm a king. But first, I have to suffer. So he's adding this idea of suffering to being the Messiah. And when the Jews heard Son of Man, they knew beyond a shadow of a doubt what he was talking about. He was calling himself the Son of the Most High. God's appointed Messiah that was coming to rule and reign. But it also doesn't just talk about Daniel 7 as a king. It refers to his humanity and his suffering as well. Isn't that interesting? So when you get a Jehovah's Witness knocking on your door that tells you he never calls himself the Son of God, you can say, well, I was at Bible class on Tuesday night. Chris Palmer told me that the Son of Man refers to Daniel chapter 7's vision and the idea of suffering. So it is God giving his life a ransom for many. Isn't that beautiful? And guess what? I got news for you. He's coming back and he's not going to be like how he came the first time. He's going to have those nails in his hand, but I'll tell you what, he's going to be something. Amen? Okay, quickly, 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 Hosea. I'm just going to give you the dates because I want to go through an activity and I don't want to get you out late. Hosea written in 758 to 722 BC. That means he was a northern prophet. What can we learn from the book of Hosea? Well, very simply, that God has emotions. Did you know that? Did you ever stop to think about that? God has emotions? You know, sometimes we think that when, you know, we, we, we sin and do something we shouldn't do, that God just like, you better repent or I'm going to strike you down. No, no, no. How about it hurts God to see his children doing things they shouldn't do? Uh, listen to this. In, uh, there's a lot of passion in this book. God is referred to as a lion, 
a leopard, a bear, an eagle, and a trapper, as well as a husband, lover, parent, and a green pine tree. <laughs> it's in there. Uh, let's see. I think it's the 14 verse 8. Let's see if I got it. Hosea 14.8. Yeah. We talked about the uses of metaphor in the Bible, and they're trying to... Here we go. Oh, Ephraim, what... Have I to do with idols? It is I who answer and look after you. I am an evergreen cypress. From me comes your fruit. <laughs> Jesus calls himself, or, or the God, Yahweh, refers to himself as a pine tree. Where's all this passion coming from? Well, God is talking about this prophet who married a prostitute. He don't tell people to do that now. Amen? <laughs> but he told them to do that then. So he's a northern prophet. So this is during, this is before. So, when, so in the book of Hosea, when you see this, He's not prophesying to Judah yet, prophesying to Israel. Israel, you have gone astray. Israel, you've become very syncretic in your in, in syncretist in your in your worship. The introduction of false gods. And it's breaking God's heart. You have a covenant with him. He'll be your God. Why do you want to go? You're drifting. You're, why are you doing this? And then here come the Assyrians and over and, and, and overtake them. But God rose up a prophet first. Then we have Joel. Joel is written in 590 BC, right before the Babylonian exile. And I won't say much about Joel other than there's this idea of the day of the Lord. It's a day of judgment that's coming. Not only for Israel, excuse me, not only for Judah, it's coming for the whole world. And you're going to see that there is prophecy that's left to be fulfilled. But, okay, so Joel's a southern prophet. Then you have Amos. Did you know that uh, someone was telling me yesterday that, um, <laughs> that uh, they asked me, I told them that Mark was the first gospel that was written. The first gospel was Mark, even though it's Matthew, Mark, Luke. Mark was the first gospel that was written, and Matthew and Luke patterned their gospel after Mark's, actually. Isn't that interesting? Uh, it's what theologians call Mark in priority, that they believe Mark was written first. But, nevertheless, they told me, no, it's impossible. I said, why? And they said, because Matthew comes first. <laughs> I said... Well, if you're going to use that reasoning, then what was the first prophet, Isaiah? They says, yeah. And I says, no, no, actually Amos was the earliest prophet. Amos was the oldest. If there was a bunch, if these prophets were all in the room, Amos would be the oldest of all of them. Amos was written first, and um, it was the earliest of prophetic writings. He was actually a contemporary with Hosea and Isaiah and Micah. He would have been the older of them all. And um, during this time, you remember Jeroboam? And Uzzah, they were good prophets. What did Jeroboam do? He destroyed all, or excuse me, uh, not Jeroboam, Josiah was a good prophet. He destroyed all this, uh, all these temples and stuff. And then you had Jeroboam, you had Uzziah. And the reforms of Josiah's time had kind of left. And now you have this ungodliness that's going on in the land of the Jerobo, uh, under these kings. And you'll see that the Assyrian overthrew the kingdom of Israel and Yahweh's voice was no longer heard and Amos was preaching that everything was the opposite of the way it should be. So you see the context that this, this, this is coming. Okay. Then Obadiah, 586 B.C. He was, again, prophesying of the coming in 587. This is all going to happen. After the over actually, it was actually after the overthrow of Israel. The thing about Obadiah that's interesting is Israel, 586 is what's happened after the exile. Jerusalem had fallen. Judgment had come upon Israel. But Obadiah is unique because he's not prophesying to Israel. He's prophesying to a land over here called Edom. 
Edom was a twin nation with Israel, the brother nations, and he was telling them that don't think you're getting off the hook. Destruction's coming to you as well. Uh, then you have Jonah. We all know the book of Jonah, right? What's going on in Jonah? This is a really interesting book. I'm going to be preaching on it Friday night. I won't be teaching the way I am now. But it functions like a parable. And at the end of Jonah is a very interesting question. It says in Jonah 4, verse 11, And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? The book ends with a question. Jonah's mad. He's like, God, listen, why are you saving these people? And then God raises up. Then there's a Jonah sitting under some shade, and a worm comes and eats the, eats the flower's root, and the tree dies. And Jonah doesn't have his shade anymore, and he's upset that this, this tree that he's taking shade under dies. And God says, you can, you're more concerned about this tree than you are about 120,000 people that could have died. Shouldn't I have saved them? So you're going to see, wait a second, Yahweh has compassion upon a barbaric people? So that's when people say, well, you know, you know, Brother Palmer, um, I know you serve the God of Israel and now Jesus Christ, but he sure is a mean God. Killed all those people. No, wait a second. Wait, wait a second. Yeah, he told them to kill the Canaanites. He told them to kill the Amorites. But wait a second. What about the God that told him to spare 120,000 people in Nineveh? And these were not nice people. They were the Assyrians. Remember I told you, the most cruel people in all of the Old Testament. Are you guys following me so far? Micah, 740 to 686. Same thing. It's going to talk about judgment that's coming, not only to Israel, but 200 years before, he's prophesying judgment coming to Judah as well. Nahum. This was written. Nahum is written in 612 B.C., somewhere in between here. But Nahum's going to do something different. Nahum's going to prophesy uh, to the Assyrians that their kingdom is going to come to an end. Because they're cruel. So he's prophesying to Syria. Habakkuk, 612 to 599 B.C., between the two exiles. And he's going to be doing the same thing. And that is, um, he's prophesying the same thing. Zephaniah, 640 to 609. He's prophesying to Jerusalem. Haggai. 520, Zechariah 520, and Malachi 460. These three are what you call post-exilic. That, that, that means that it's already happened, they've already been taken in exile, and what they're going to prophesy is encouraging words about rebuilding the temple and plans of a future restoration. Okay, so you got that. Now we could go through all these books bit by bit, but that's basically what's going on. Now, um... Write these down real quick. We're going to do a, uh, we're gonna, at 8.30, we'll do a quick exercise. Then we'll pray and you guys can go home before the snow comes. Okay, there's different types of prophecies, okay? So when you listen to what the prophets are saying, you'll find out that, you know, they weren't always the same types of prophets. You know, we can tell jokes or tell riddles or use irony, different types of genres. There's different types of styles of prophecy. Number one, there's the covenant lawsuit. 
and I'll give you the chapter, Isaiah 3, verse 3, 13 through 26. I won't spend much time on this because we're going to do an exercise in a covenant lawsuit. We're going to spend some time seeing what one is. But basically, God is the plaintiff, the attorney, the judge, and the bailiff. And he pull, puts a lawsuit on the people who he's talking to. And he basically sets up Israel as a judge and then condemns them. He plays all the roles of the people in court and then says, this is why I'm going to judge you. Boom. You know why? Because he's a God of justice. Then there's the woe. How many know what a woe is, right? The word woe was what Israel cried out when they were facing disaster. And when you see a woe, uh, Habakkuk 2, verse 6 through 8, a woe is an announcement of distress, a prediction of doom, and it gives you the reason why they should be distressed. And then you have a prophecy known as the pro a promise. And anytime you see a promise, there's three elements that you'll see. There's the future, and you'll see uh, that when the prophet says, In that day, says the Lord. In that day, oh, now you know a promise is coming. God's getting ready to speak a promise. Radical change. And you'll see usually blessing that's going to happen. And there's the, probably the most common one is a messenger speech what's a messenger speech it's simply when a prophet goes in and says this is what the Lord says or thus saith the Lord you know God uses us in messenger speeches nowadays Malachi 1 2 through 5 listen we see we don't just see this in the prophets numbers 2014 says Moses sent messengers from Kadesh to the king of Edom this says your brother Israel you know all the hardships that we have met so you'll see that Moses sends a messenger and tells him, say this as my messenger. Well, God's doing the same thing. It's the same principle. And instead of speaking on behalf of Moses, they're speaking on behalf of God, right? Okay. Um, now, then there's poetry, and I won't get into poetry. Um, but we look at today poetry as something that makes our speech a little bit less intelligible. You know, if you're going to put it in a rhyme it's kind of making it sound dumber right right what's a famous rhyme roses are red violets are blue i like candy and so do you you know what i mean and this is this is this is what is this this is kid like but the poetry that we use that's rhymey like that that has usually a couple of scales and measures that's what's called dog row poetry and it is the lowest kind of poetry we really don't have high poetry as an english American society, even rap music and things of this type of poetry is usually on the low end. Not all rap music, but just lower scales and measures. Um, in Israel, they had these high fluting forms of poetry. And the reason why prophets would come and speak in poetry and rhymes and scales and measures is because reading and writing in their time was a very rare skill. Most educated people couldn't read and write, and they didn't have scrolls in their homes. So how are they going to remember all this stuff? It had to be catchy in their minds. They had to be able to hear it and be able to remember it. And I'm sure their attention span was better than us who have iPhones today. Right. <laughs> Our attention span is like zero. <laughs> Every 40 minutes they say people tune out, and it's true. Okay, uh, we're about to do an exercise in a few minutes real quick. Um, the basic prophetic message, when, when you take a message of a prophet and you boil it down, and it has three things about it. Number one, are you ready for this? The number one thing you're going to see in a prophetic message, the whole reason why this is prophetic is number one, 
the first thing God is saying, you have broken the covenant and you had better repent. This is why God is preaching to these people. You're breaking the covenant. Repent. God's given them a chance. And usually you'll find three things that Israel has done. I mean, everything we just saw in Amos, all the 16 prophets. Um, <laughs> there's three things they did. Number one, idolatry. What was Israel's biggest sin? Idolatry. They've set up idols. Ashtoreth, Baal, Molech. It's amazing how disgusting that these practices were, but Israel introduced them. You know why they were doing that? Because the kings were marrying foreign wives who talked them into these idols. And guess what happened in times of sin like this? You know what happens in times of sin? You can guarantee it. There'll be social injustices. What do you mean by social injustices? I mean that uh, they weren't uh, taking care of the poor the way they should. The priests that got into this, they were robbing Will man rob God? Yet you've robbed me. This was an indictment in Malachi, not on the common people. This was an indictment on the priests. The next time a prophet, say, a pastor says, will a man rob God? And he's talking to the congregation. The question is, will a pastor use his offerings for the wrong reasons? Will you rob the people will you, by robbing God? You should be spending this money on, on the poor, but you're not spending it on the poor. You're not doing what you said you would do with the money. And then you have, um, after, uh, of course, neglecting of the widows. God was very concerned about how people were taken. He says in Deuteronomy 24, 14, You shall not oppress a hired worker who is poor and needy, whether he is one of your brothers or one of the sojourners who are in your land within your towns. Jeremiah 5, 28, You know no bounds in deeds of evil. They judge not with justice the cause of the fatherless to make it prosper, and they do not defend the rights of the needy. And then there was religious ritualism. Religious ritualism. Listen to this prophet. We're gonna, this is the, the passage we're going to work with in five minutes. So if you have your Bible, you can turn there. Micah 6, 7 through 8. This is, really, this is really the cause of all the problems. This is why they went into idolatry. And I'm going to be preaching on this on Friday night. This was the big problem, the big sin of Israel. Would the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams? With ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression? Listen to the language that's being talked about here. A thousand ram, that's a lot. Ten thousand rivers of oil? Not just rivers of oil. You did a sin, you could have my firstborn, God. The fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? Has has he, he has told you, O oh man, what is good and what does the Lord require? but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. Ah. So you see that God is saying, no, 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 wait, no, I don't want all of this stuff. What I want is, what I want is your heart. And you're doing all this stuff. You're giving all these sacrifices, but you're still worshiping idols. You're giving all these sacrifices, but you're still uh, uh, mistreating the poor. And the reason is because you're a cold-hearted, stiff-necked people. And this is why you're going to be judged by these lands that are going to come in and tear you up. That's pretty strong stuff, right? And then, after we said there's three messages, you've broken the covenant, you'd better repent. The next thing is, no repentance? Here comes judgment. It's 
pretty bad, right? And then after that, we'll see that the third element to a prophecy is God's mercy then comes behind it and says, well, even though there's judgment, there's going to be hope for a future restoration. So God really never leaves them just punished because guess what? He made a promise, right? Does he have a promise to Israel? Absolutely. God made a promise with Abraham and he's going to fulfill it. He's still going to fulfill it even though we're in 2015. He's still going to fulfill his promise to the Israel. We're seeing that take place now. Okay. Um, real quick, I want to make mention that we'll see in... Actually, you know what? Let's go to... Um, let's just go to Micah chapter 6. I'll leave it at that. Micah 6. We've talked about... Has anybody used the... Uh, <laughs> has anyone used... Um, the methods of study that we talked about. You know, we talked about the verse by verse method of study. Has anyone done anything? Anyone done any exercises? Sorry, have you done any exercises? Have you guys worked out any of these? <laughs> Latanya, you sent me some of your homework before. I know. Yeah? But did you enjoy it when you did it? I did. You enjoyed it? Okay. Okay, real quick. Um, so let's boil this all down. I've said a lot, I've said some things tonight. But what do we do when you're studying by yourself at your house? You say, okay, you know what? I dare you to go into Habakkuk or Amos one of these days. Get some boldness and just go in and, and, and try and take it about. But let's do it together first so that when you guys go to do something, you don't drown and have to write me an email and say, how do I do this again, right? Okay. All right, let's do a passage. Micah chapter 6. And this will be real easy. And I have a very simple... Uh, uh, I have a very simple... Um, method of Bible interpretation for you so that you can do this at home. It's called the, we'll call it the interpretive journey. Four quick steps. I think this best fits our, um, let me get there. You guys like this intellectual lecture. You feel like you're in a seminary, right? Okay. Mike is six, six through eight. Let's read this real quick, and let's break this passage up, and the first thing we want to do is pick our passage. Let's just say you're at home, and you're working through this. I'm going to read it in the NLT, because I, I recommend the NLT for devotional use. Here we go. What can we bring the Lord? Now, the first question we want to ask ourselves is, who's doing the talking, right? This is um, not the Lord talking. This is the thoughts of the people. Ready? What can we bring the Lord? Should we bring Him burnt offerings? Should we bow before God Most High with offerings of yearling calves? Should we offer Him thousands of rams and 10,000 rivers of oil? Should we sacrifice our firstborn children to pay for our sins? Now, let's stop here for a second. We've learned about the uses of figures of speech. Let me remind you what Jesus says. Um, it would be better for you to gouge out your eye than to look lustfully upon a woman. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. But was Jesus really saying that if my right hand steals, I should cut my right hand off? Is that what Jesus is saying? It's a figure of speech that we would call hyperbole. 
and hyperbole is just an over exaggeration to make a point about the seriousness of sin better to live with the agony of cutting your hand off than to have sin in your heart so he's not really saying cut off your hand he's just using an over you know, we use hyperbole all the time you know like I said before I went to the mall and everybody was shopping today you know Everybody in the whole world was at the Super Bowl. Well, no, not everybody. If everybody was at the whole world was at the Super Bowl, then it's not true because I wasn't there. So not everybody was there. A lot of people were there, though, right? Well, this is hyperbole. Um, should we give them 10,000 rams and 10,000 rivers of oil? So you see it's poetic language, right? Okay. Um, now look what it says here. He has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly before your God. This is God doing the talking. So there's two people talking here, or a representative of God, but it's not, it's an answer to a question. So if you take this verse, you have to pick up the dialogue. So the first two verses represents a person, and the second verse represents an answer to their question. Now, do you remember what I told you about different types of prophecies? Remember I told you that there's one called the lawsuit. This is what this is. This is, all of this is actually God talking. But he's talking as though he is the people. He's mimicking the people. So we have a covenant lawsuit going on right here. Are you kind of seeing this? Are you guys with me right now? Okay. So now you've recognized that we're dealing with a covenant lawsuit. You recognize that God is acting as a judge. He is um, putting his people on trial. And the next thing that you want to do is, this is all part of our first step, which is discovering what this text means to the biblical audience. So if you were here, you know, during this time, what do you think this would mean? Well, the first question you have to ask yourself is, um, when did this happen? When was this going on? Well, this is during Micah's time, and as I said, this is 740 B.C. to 686 B.C. So this is around the time that Israel had been taken captive by Assyria. Actually, it's before it, it's, it, uh, they were taken captive by Assyria, so they're going into judgment now. So how would you think now? You see Israel's doing all this sinful stuff, Israel's doing bad, and you hear Micah come here and prophesy this. So what would your initial thought be? We're in trouble. We better, we better take, this is not good for us. This is going to be bad. So um, you'll see that there's a warning of future judgment. So like I said before, if you were in Israel at this time, you would probably be shocked, you'd probably be upset, you'd probably be discouraged. Um, but the next thing that you have to do is that taking this prophecy that was for Israel... You know, we're talking about this method here now. You have first, number one, decide what it means to the biblical audience. It's a message of doom. We know that it's going on during the time of Assyria. But the second step is you ask yourself, now that you've got down what's going on, ask yourself in your devotions, what's the difference between the biblical audience and us? Does anybody know the difference? I mean, what are some differences between them being under a threat of the Assyrians coming and us. What are some differences? How about there's no king in America? Right? There's no king here. 
How about number two? The only enemy that we have to worry about coming in here in the United States is Canada. And I don't think they're going to do it anytime soon, right? <laughs> you know, we're blessed as, uh, as a country because we don't have to worry about ever, you know, being... We're not, we're not really landlocked in any other countries. You know, you go over to some places like Europe, South Africa, other places, and they always have to make peace with their surrounding border nations because they're going to get, they could, they mess with them and upset them. Guess what? There's an invasion. We have the seas protecting us. So the difference is we're not landlocked like Israel. We don't have to worry about some country coming in and God using judgment on us. I mean, we got the Canadians, we got the Mexicans, and we're at peace with them, right? All right. Let's, stay, let's keep it that way. And how about, as always, with the Old Testament passage, we're under a different covenant. So we're not necessarily, you know, uh, under the Old Testament. And that's why when we're working with the Old Testament passage, we've got to remember that. That not everything that's said in the Old Testament is for us. Like Sabbath keeping and Holy Days and Rosh Hashanah and all those days that the Jews keep. We don't keep those as Christians. Right? Okay. So reading this passage, can we find any... Theological principles. So number one, we discover what the text meant to the biblical audience. Number two, what's the difference between the biblical audience and us? You want to ask yourself these questions when you're working with the text. And if you say, I don't know what's going on in the passage. You know, I, I can't figure this out. What's going on? You, there's always Google, right? Just turn your phone on and just go on there and type in, uh, put the verse in there and say commentary. And something's going to pop up. You don't have to go to the seminary and pull out 10,000 books. Just Google it. Google help me all the time, you know. Just don't read some blog that looks like some crazy guy put it up, you know. Make sure it's actually got copyright sources. And if you're not sure about the source, you can always go on Amazon and find out what you're reading. <laughs> and uh, a note to you, don't read people's blogs when you're going to do something scholarly. Blogs are highly opinionated and usually don't have one or two facts. But, you know, you know just Google it. Find out what's going on. Okay. So then, what's the theological principle? Well, what, what are some principles in here? When I say theological, don't get scared. What's a principle in here that is pretty generally spoken of throughout the whole Bible? How about God desires our obedience from the heart and not sacrifice in vain? Does that sound like a theological principle? Sounds like one to you, Shar. Can anybody think of another one? How about the greatest thing God asks of us is to love Him and those who are neighbors from the heart. Can you see that in this verse? Do you see how we're going from this passage that is in Micah, and it's during a time of who knows what, bringing it to life in our time? Because we're working towards application. Someone say application. Because what good is Micah if you can't apply it to your life? What good is Habakkuk if you can't? People don't think they can apply this stuff to their life. Yeah, you can apply it, absolutely. But you want to dig it out. So first thing you do is you find out... Uh, let me write, write this down and take notes. Um, this is your steps you want to do. This is an easy way of remembering it. This is what we always say. The book, the look, and the took. What is the book? You say, well, how do I get something out of this passage? Remember, you start with the book. And you ask yourself, what does it say? Okay? What does it say? That's the book. And then there's the look. You know what this is? What does it mean? Got it? 
So what does it say? What does it mean? How do you know there's a difference between what something says and what something means? Right? Like I could say, look before you leap. Well, what did I say? He said, look before you leap. Well, what does it mean? That's a whole other thing. What did he mean by that? <laughs> you know, well, Brother Palmer, I'm, I'm going to get married. Look before you leap. What does he mean by that? <laughs> leap what? Leap the, leap the altar? No, no, no. I mean, before you get married. It's like, be cautious before making a decision. Right? And then there's the took. Which basically means, what should I do with it? Got it? So what's the look? Well, the look is what we just says. It's a whole bunch of, uh, it's a prophecy, 747, 86 BC. What is the took? The took is loving God with all your heart. Uh, that's the book. What's the look? What's the took? Here we go. Um, then you, st okay, so, so <clears throat> that out of the way, four steps. <clears throat> Number one, discover what the text means to the biblical audience. Number two, what is the difference between the biblical audience and us? Number three, what is the theological principle in this text? And number four, how does this principle fit into the rest of the Bible? That's an important thing because I remember one time <laughs> somebody had this revelation um, of Jesus is um, earthly father. Well, there's no such revelation as, I mean, Jesus is earthly father like natural father. Jesus didn't have an earthly natural father. He had a stepfather, but he didn't have a natural father. And I told him, I was like, you know, you're going to have to <laughs> rethink that one. Oh, yeah, that's right. I forgot. Uh, forgot. You know, if Jesus has an earthly father, we're all in a bit of trouble. We're all on our way to destruction. I mean, he's not the Redeemer then. We're going to have to wait for someone else. Are you he or is it someone else? Okay, so how does it fit with the rest of the Bible? Well, if you get a concept like this, how, does our concept fit with the rest of the Bible? Can anyone think of something in the New Testament that supports loving God with our hearts? How about we start with what Jesus says? A new commandment I give to you. Love one another just as I've loved you. Also have love one to another. John thirteen thirty four. Sounds pretty good, right? How about Galatians 2.10? Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very, the very thing I was eager to do. Do we see loving, helping the poor and loving God with all of our hearts? Jesus says, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind, and with all thy strength. That sounds like um, it fits in with the rest of the Bible. Matthew 22, 37, and 38. How about in the Old Testament? What did Samuel say in 1 Samuel 15, 22? Has the, Lord, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen, better than the fat of the rams. Do you see how perfectly that fits into our verse here? 1 Samuel 15 is exactly what God's saying in Micah chapter 6, verse 8. I don't need your calves. I don't need any of this stuff. What I need is your heart. So if you were going to teach this to a class, you could teach this verse and say the most important thing God has is your heart. So how do we apply this? So step number five. Remember, number one, what did this mean? Number two, what are the differences? Number three, what is the principle in this? Number four, how does it fit in with the rest of the Bible and where? And number five, we're going to come away with the took. And that is, how should we live this? What's practical? This is where you'd want to make a decision. I mean, uh, in your own life, how do you apply this? 
you have this chapter and you think to yourself, uh, well, what should I do? And I'll give you the one I did this study today. I actually did this study for my devotional time, my quiet time before the Lord. I took a account of all the things I was doing for God. Writing sermons every day, every a couple times a week, spending time ministering to God's people. Today I went and did a hospital visit. So early praying, um, you know, all the stuff you do as a minister, counseling on the phone, setting up a church, starting a church, you know, getting a worship and all this stuff you do, and then you stop to think, is this really what God wants from me? Do all this stuff, but is this really what God wants from me? I think what we do sometimes is very easy is that we maybe supplement our heart and where it should be with God for the things that we do. Well, you know, I love God so I'm gonna I'm gonna move chairs. I love God so I'm gonna put away things. I love God so I'm gonna go to church. I love God. Well is this really important to God? And I've shared this before that if it doesn't come from the heart, it's not genuine. I said before, I always should talk about my nephew. My nephew, um, you know, he, no, um, I won't even use him. Somebody, um, the young man that we gave a, uh, you know, it was his birthday, if you were there on Friday night, I remember it was his birthday, and we, the young man, it was his birthday, and we got him a cake and bought him a birthday gift. And after the service, he comes up to me and he hands me an offering envelope. And I don't take money, so I said, no, no, no. I said, no, no, no. go give that to so-and-so. I said, oh, thank you, thank you, oh, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you so much. But go give that to so-and-so because you know, I don't want to be seen taking money. No, 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 no. There's nothing in it. I have a message on it for you. I want to be like, you should use one of my offering envelopes, though. <laughs> no, but I said, okay, thank you. And um, what his mother later told me it was, you know, a thank you note. But, you know, I didn't know that when I looked at it. It was... You know, I couldn't read what he was saying. Well, I need to Google Translate, you know what I mean? But, you know, sloppy and everything. But he's just a, a young kid. But the point I'm trying to make is, didn't have to say much. The kid spent time from his heart writing this. It wasn't anything grandiose. But the fact of the matter is, he came in and he wrote it from his heart. That's what God's really looking for. You know, we spend time worshiping and um, playing and stuff, but... Really what God's looking at is your position. Why are you doing what you're doing? And as ancient of an oracle and as complicated as a book like Micah is, that's so distant from us. We feel sometimes that, you know, we're here and the prophetic book's over here and somewhere we have Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, maybe Genesis, Exodus, and you have Micah, Isaiah. They're all over here. When you think about it like this, all the principles are pretty much right around here where we're at. They're all the same. And what this tells you is that God has been after the same thing the whole time. Genesis, what did he want from Adam and Eve? Their heart. Exodus, what did God want with the people of Israel? Their heart. Leviticus, why do we have all these rules and regulations? Because God wanted to dwell with his people. And this was going to be covenant keeping. Ezra, Nehemiah, when they rebuilt the temple, why did God want the temple to be rebuilt? Why didn't he want it to leave it in shambles? What benefit does God have to have a temple for? He doesn't need a temple to dwell because he wanted to dwell with his people. Why did God send Jesus? Because he wants to be close to his people. You'll start to see that 
even though the times and the customs and the traditions of the people and the political sabotage of their day is much different than our day, the principle at the heart is really the same. And it's those things that we don't want to miss in these, in these expositions. We get so caught up trying to find out the history sometimes that we miss the principles. Amen? Now that you've heard the light of today, connect with us. Go to our website, lightoftoday.org. Write us at P.O. Box 403, Wald Lake, Michigan, 48390. Or tweet Chris Palmer at twitter.com forward slash Chris Palmer. Our podcasts are free and updated regularly, so make sure to share them with a friend and tune in again to The Light of Today with Chris Palmer.